At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Infertility and Me podcast. I'm your host, Monique Farouk. You guys may already know me, but for those who are here for the very first time, I am a women's health advocate, IVF mom to one, wife and entrepreneur. Today, we have a very special guest. She is a writer and a PR consultant and all around badass. Her name is Lisa McCarty, and she's joining us to tell us about her story to momhood and her trials and tribulations going through infertility, miscarriage a whole plethora of other things that transpired during um, her trying to conceive journey. So Lisa, thank you, my dear, so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you so very much for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. So Lisa, how did you and hubby meet, girl? How did how did you guys get together? So we actually met in London. We were working overseas. We both used to travel internationally a lot and I was in a different role then, but I was working for a magazine and doing advertising sales actually prior to my communications and PR world change. And we were at a show called Farnborough Air Show in London and we both connected through a friend who I guess I walked by his trade show booth and basically he said, I need to meet her. <laughs> so long story short, we ended up meeting up at a bar and he asked me if, if I could meet up with him when we got back to the States. It turned out that we lived really close by. So we got together on a group date. He kissed me goodnight and that was it. So it's been 17 years that we've been together and and married since 2009. So Yes, it all kinds of gets jumbled up after a while, doesn't it? I, I know. I'm like, it. what year is it? What day is it? <laughs> Girl, I know. I just can't keep track. But yeah, it's been it's been a long, a long haul with him. He's my best friend and I'm so grateful for him. Yes, I love it. I love it. That's why I asked that question because it always just brings joy for a lot of people to talk about it. Yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. It sounds like that was really cool meeting overseas like that. Very cool. Very, yeah. very cool. So did you always know that you wanted to be a mom? Was that something that you ever gave any thought? Because it sounds like you are really ambitious and you were doing your work overseas for a while. So did you ever think that you were going to be a mom? I definitely have always been, and I would call myself a type A overachiever. I have a feeling you and I are probably similar, similar that way. But yes, as far as work goes, I feel like I was always sort of ambitious when it came to that. But with respect to becoming a mom, no, I actually didn't. I, you know, I kind of feel like that light bulb moment happened in my late 20s, like, you know, right around that moment where you're like, doing well in your career. And then all of a sudden, you know, that light switch goes on and your body says, it's time. Let's have, let's have a baby. And then that definitely wasn't as quick as we hoped. So yeah, so that's kind of how we, we started. Wow. So how long had you guys been together when you started discussing? So we had been married a couple of years and I actually wasn't having any menstrual cycle. So it's funny. I feel like when I think back to physical education in high school, you know, the things that we learned, my mom actually was a PE teacher as well. So I kind of grew up watching those period videos, <laughs> you know, the ones that they, they showed us when we were younger, the, the ones that are totally just cringy now. But anyway, I feel like I knew a lot about the body, you know, kind of the basics, but I didn't realize that it was kind of like putting two and two together. Like, 
if I wasn't having a cycle that I couldn't get pregnant. And, you know, in, in reality, like we know our bodies, we know when something's wrong. And so I basically, I, I think it was one of those sort of changing moments where I went to the doctor and I said, something's going on. I don't know what's happening. My, my period has basically just stopped. And she said, well, you need to see an endocrinologist because I can't answer that question. Made an appointment with an endocrinologist, which obviously took a few months because they're always busy. And then proceeded to have a conversation about doing sort of that baseline testing to determine if there's any other factors. And then we went into treatment, essentially. So I didn't know how far you wanted me to go into detail on the length of treatment because it was a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gathered that from the article that you recently wrote from Huffington Post that yeah. it was quite a bit of a process not having any children to getting to your two children now. And yes. when you initially got diagnosed, what did they diagnose you with? Uh, I was originally diagnosed with postamenorrhea, which is known as you know lack of period. And it can happen. It, it is common to happen when you have been on birth control for a long period of time. And I had been on it like many women for so long. I actually was put on it initially because I was having ovarian cysts. So it was supposed to essentially reduce the frequency of ovarian cysts. This was, you know, a million years ago. So I'm not going to say my age, but <laughs> it was a while ago. So, so essentially I wasn't having a cycle and they diagnosed me with postamenorrhea, which we actually later learned was PCOS, which is, I think it's actually PCOS Awareness Month. So the timing of this conversation is, yeah. is interesting. So yes. yeah, so PCOS is kind of complicated and I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it can, for those who've gone through fertility treatment and that are listening, it can cause complications if you're doing IUI. So we initially started with IUI, which is, you know, intrauterine insemination, which is less sort of complicated than IVF. And I feel like I kind of instinctively knew it wasn't going to work because I was always the complicated case in everything, you know, like I wasn't having a cycle and they just couldn't figure it out. So we, we did IUI for a couple of years before we had a switch over to IVF. And as I mentioned in my post essay, it was probably like three years before we even had the opportunity to start IVF. It was when they determined that I had PCOS, that I was a better candidate for IVF because I remember my endocrinologist calling me and saying, have you heard of the Octomom? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, if you continue to do IUI, you will be worse off than the Octomom because you tend to overstimulate in your follicles really high. And, you know, I had like 20 follicles or 30 follicles at once. And he was like, and if those all decide to fertilize, you know, we're going to be in big trouble. So he was like, was IVF. Just with minimal, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Was that just with minimal medications that you were getting? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So I was basically like overstimulating. So he was like, we need a controlled scenario, which is IVF, where you're, we're only putting one back and we, you know, we can monitor every single, because I seem to recall and, and my memory serves me well, usually. So if I'm, if I'm miss remembering, tell me, you know, regarding the IUI cycle, I seem to recall that they kind of just, you know, put it in and then you hope for the best, right? And then IVF is a lot more of a technical process because you're, you know, you're tracking everything. And because, you know, at the outset of that process, he was like, IVF is just going to be your best bet because, you know, you're overstimulating. So we actually ended up doing our first IVF or sorry, egg retrieval rather. And then we got a good amount of eggs and it was, you know, during fertilization and that whole thing, it was, or sorry, as the, the blastocysts were sort of developing, he came back and said, you know, we're going to put one in, we're going to try this and see how it goes. And I was like, can we put two in, you know, I've always wanted twins. And he was like, no, we're, we're trying this, the, you know, he was a very conservative doctor as, as, you know, many endocrinologists are, especially in my case where we hadn't done it before, he was concerned. So he just wanted to make sure 
you know, it was all kind of a controlled, simple scenario. So after the retrieval, I actually ended up overstimulating and I had OHSS, which, you know, if you, I'm not sure if you went through that, but ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And essentially I had like my legs swelled up. And like I said, I'm always the 1%. I'm always the one that has complications. So I ended up overstimulating and they sent me to the emergency room. This is before I even had the transfer. At this point, they decided they were going to do a frozen transfer because my body was like telling me that it was too much. And I was, I I think my estrogen went up to like 6,000 and I wasn't even pregnant yet. Right. So it was so high. And so they sent me to the ER. I remember the nurse calling and she was like, are you having swelling in your legs? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, is it more in one leg than the other? And I was like, yeah, actually my right leg is more swollen. She's like, well, you might have DVT. So we need to get you checked out, which is essentially a potential blood clot in the leg. A deep vein thrombosis, I think is the abbreviation. Yeah. Yeah, So they sent me to the ER, they had an ultrasound and that whole thing. And it was very stressful. I ended up having my first panic attack. And this was kind of the beginning of awareness of mental health and how you are impacted in the infertility process. We had been going through treatment for a few years at this point. So I definitely would say it was one of those eye-opening moments because I didn't realize that just trying to just trying to have a baby could impact your, you know, physiologically that mental health can you know, show symptoms. And, you know, I prior to that, I'd never had anything, what I recall as a panic attack. And I, my hands went numb, my arms went numb, and I was like holding the pen and the clipboard to fill out the paperwork as they're wheeling me back, you know, because they're trying, you know, like if you have a blood clot, they want to prioritize this. So anyway, so my hands went numb and I remember I couldn't feel the pen in my hand. And I thought, this isn't normal. (laughs) Like at first I thought it was related to my leg, but I asked the nurse, I was like, is it normal that my, you know, I can't feel my hands. And she was like, of course she was concerned. And then she said, well, are you feeling stressed? And I said, yes. And then I sort of, you know, you realize you you start to have that self-awareness in the infertility process, I think in general, like how am I feeling today? Cause you're in that constant check-in mode, especially when you're trying to get pregnant. So anyway, so it thankfully ended up being okay. It was just swelling as a result of fluid retention in my legs, uh, you know, essentially like edema and as a result of the high estrogen level. And so we had to wait a few weeks before we did the transfer because he wanted my body to kind of calm down. So I seem to recall we had to sort of take a break and then wait, like maybe it was like a month. And then I had to kind of wait till my cycle came and then do the meds again. And then we did, I seem to recall right before the transfer, you know, do the trigger shot and all that. So we did the, the IVF transfer, our first one, and the numbers were good on the first beta and the second beta. And I was like, wow, this is going to be, you know, you know, I felt like I had reached the top of the mountain. Like we did it, you know, this is going to be it. I'm done. And so thankfully, like the pregnancy itself was relatively normal. I actually didn't tell anyone, which is probably common for many women in infertility. Mm -hmm. I did not tell a single person, even in my family until I was like almost four months, maybe it was close to five months. I didn't post a single picture on social media, nothing because I was hesitant because of what we, you know, we, we had basically had failures up to this point. I hadn't had any miscarriages, but my husband obviously knew because he was with me through the whole process, but Mm -hmm. I didn't tell friends I was going through it. I didn't tell, I didn't even think I told my mom at this point because I was internalizing so much of it. And I felt like this is my problem and I didn't want to put it on anyone else. And I think so much of this, you know, process at the beginning for me was like all about not becoming a burden to other people because mm-hmm. we don't want to sort of project our problems into other people and everybody has their own stuff, you know? 
And so I felt like if I was dealing with infertility, I needed to do it on my own, which obviously, as we know, it affects millions of women. And this is definitely not the case. We don't have to do it alone. I just didn't know that then. So essentially went through the pregnancy, everything was good. And as I mentioned in my essay, I ended up having actually, she, so she came three weeks early, my daughter, and she decided it was time. So it was like three in the morning, water broke. It was like one of those out of a movie, like a rom-com. Oh, honey, you know, there's like a liter of wood on the floor. What's happening? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, I'm having a baby like right now. But I wasn't clearly. So we we got in the car and it was all like a big joke. I mean, my husband and I still (laughs) laugh about this now because it was just one of those laughable moments. So we get to the hospital, they, we're, we're like at the curb, you know, of women's health, women's delivery center, whatever. And we pull up, he pulls out a wheelchair because he's nervous and the whole thing is a disaster. And the wheelchair, as soon as I go to sit down and I'm like having contractions on the way there and I'm like on the ground every time, actually right before we got in the car, this is Mm -hmm. another funny scenario, but Mm -hmm. He's, he goes to the car, he's starting the car, puts the bag in the car, comes back and I'm on the floor. I had to lay down every time I had a contraction because it was so intense. Like she was coming so fast. So we, we got to the hospital and they take us, you know, we're sorry, we get to the curb and the wheelchair, he pulls it out and I go to sit down and it's broken. Like literally the, the wheel is missing and I'm like almost on the ground and we're both laughing and the nurse comes out and she's like, all right, you know what, husband, go park the car. (laughs) We're done here. I got her. So he was, he was a mess. It was so funny. But anyway, so we, we got in normal delivery. Actually, we ended up having to pause because the OB wasn't available. It was all just a big joke. Like, I felt like I was on candid camera the whole time. So intense contractions, didn't even have time for an epidural. So then they tried to do the epidural and it almost, I think it didn't work on one side. So my right side, I could feel everything. My left side, Mm -hmm. nothing. And so delivery was okay. And then it ended up being a total complication with, the placenta. They couldn't get it out. She worked for 45 minutes. And I think the average amount of time for placenta is 45 minutes to an hour that women can safely have, you know, sort of a manual extraction of it. Mm-hmm. But I had lost so much blood. I had a, a hemorrhage, I probably close to a liter of blood at that point. And so they mm-hmm. sent me back to an emergency DNC. And they were like, I don't honestly know why they waited that long. And in this current maternal health crisis that we're in right now, I can see how women have this issue often because I think doctors are doing the best they can. I don't fault my doctor, Mm -hmm. but I think it should have happened sooner. So I ended up doing a DNC, which is a trauma to the uterus. And, you know, my recovery was relatively normal and everything was okay. She was obviously, you know, my my kiddo was fine but i'd say it ended up being sort of a traumatic experience because it was supposed to just be delivery and like let's get this done and have a baby and then you go home and it's all the social media pictures and all that but that's not actually how it happened say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill So then 16 months later, I decided I wanted to have another one, you know, the light switch came back on, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that itch. (laughs) Yeah. What, what is that anyway? It's like that maternal need, that innate, you know, feeling you get in your, 
womb Deep to have womb. something. Yes, and, and so I thought because it happened in my mind quickly, which was three years for her, that maybe we, we would, and we had success with IVF. Like I thought we had kind of figured it out. So I thought it would be no problem. Like it would be like, all right, I've got remaining embryos. Let's just do this thing. Let's just have another, you know, do one more IVF. I'll have some left. Maybe we'll have another one eventually. No, <laughs> not the case. So we went on for almost four years. We ended up doing another retrieval because I basically used the remaining embryos that I had. It ended up being a total of 14 IVF cycles. And wow. so that last year, and I talked about this in my essay as well, the the last year was the most horrendous because it was just loss after loss after loss after loss. It was four in a row. And that last one was just debilitating. One, it was yeah, that. Yeah. Talk about, you know, mental health impact. I, I don't even think, yes, I was physically coping with the grief of miscarriage, but I was not mm -hmm. mentally coping with any of it. Like I just wanted to have another baby. And I was so focused on that, that I just like, I mean, obviously like it brought me to my, the floor of the bathroom, you know, that last one yeah. on the floor with my husband, he's holding me, you know, like, I'm just thinking, what is wrong with me? Like there, there has to be a reason why, like we went from successful IVF the first time to just failed attempts and then a series of four losses. So, so that's when I, you know, that last one I went to my endocrinologist and I said, what's wrong with me? Like, <laughs> what, what have we not looked at? And he said, I think you need to see a specialist. And to which I said, I thought you were the specialist. You're supposed to, you know, you're split to hell, you know? So, you know, and he was just like, he still, you know, is one of the people I, I credit to just keeping me calm. Of course, my husband being the grounded one who got me through this, but my endocrinologist always just had my best interest in mind, just so conservative, always wanted to think of, think outside the box. And they had basically thrown the kitchen sink at me at this point. I had tried. ERA, I had tried, you know, calculating the timing of it. We tried doing different medications. Mm -hmm. We tried a different trigger shot a few times because a couple of the cycles, the trigger shot didn't work. Like we okay. switched from Lupron to HCG or something. I can't remember. Anyway, so it was all, you know, it's all trial and error. You don't, yep. they don't actually know the answer. It's just everybody is different. And so, we went back into his office and he said, you need to see a specialist. There's this doctor who does gynecological surgery and he knows all about these pelvic and reproductive conditions. And there's a chance that you may have something else going on. And, and I'm like, well, what is it? You know, well, what do you think it is? And he's like, I don't know. So I went to the specialist and essentially, you know, he brings you in. It actually, it took me several months to get this appointment. So it was like also more waiting. You know, this whole process is hurry up and wait. Yeah. And it's a toddler. Exactly. And I know I would definitely say for those who have gone through this with another child, this sort of primary and secondary infertility scenario, the secondary piece, you can't just make it go away. You can't just pretend like you're fine. The, you know, kids, they pick up on this stuff. They know when mom is not right. And so I definitely feel like she sensed that. She sensed my anxiety. She sensed my feeling, un, you know, of unease on a regular basis. But, you know, we, I feel like she was just such an easy kid. I was so grateful because, you know, we didn't have a lot of, issues sort of managing that I and I was grateful because I was able to stay at home with her so I was taking care of her not really taking care of myself as well as I could have been and over that four years prior to seeing the specialist I was having increased anxiety as well so I was having more panic attacks and that last miscarriage I definitely felt like 
you know, the hands went numb again. And I felt like Mm -hmm. that same feeling that I had back right before that ultrasound happened when they thought I had a blood clot. So it's interesting, this whole process, it sort of creates an awareness within you. If you have that self-awareness of how you feel and how anxiety affects you in a physiological way, you know, heart rate increase, hands going numb, Mm -hmm. headaches, crying, you know, on a regular basis, being triggered easily, having a hard time attending events because you're just so affected by this and you're just holding it all in because you just don't want to talk about it. And I think all of those things are really horrible because it makes you feel like you're struggling in silence. So so anyway, so I, I, you know, going back to the specialist, so I, I saw the specialist mm-hmm. finally, and he did an evaluation, physical exam, and we kind of talked about the history of my DNC after my daughter was born. And then mm-hmm. I had another a couple of subsequent DNCs after my miscarriages. So, and one of them, I think may have been an incomplete miscarriage because we didn't do a DNC on one. Mm-hmm. So he said, you're, it's, you know, I'm suspecting it could be something called Asherman syndrome. And at this time I had no idea what that was. I had never heard of it before. And so he said, basically we need to make another appointment to do an evaluation hysteroscopy, which basically is, you know, like a 16 inch long tool with a camera on the end to determine what's going on. And he said, if I see scarring in the uterus, I'm basically going to take it out. And then we'll have a confirmation that it's Asherman's. So, yeah, so we basically did that evaluation. He saw a lot of scarring at the top, which is called the fundus of the uterus, and also some scarring in the center of the uterus, which looked, he said, looks like web-like scarring where it can Mm -hmm. impact implantation. And so he said that he thought that was the reason why I was having the recurrent miscarriage and he wanted to do this series of four treatments. And so basically the treatments were removing the scar tissue. And then two, uh, two weeks later, I went back in between those treatments prior to the second appointment, he had me do estrogen vaginally. And this essentially helps to heal the endometrial lining so that ideally the scar tissue doesn't come back. And so the second, second appointment, the scar tissue did come back. And so he said, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to take it out. It was a little bit less than the first time, but it was still significant. Okay. So did the endometrial, sorry, did the estrogen again for two weeks. And then the third appointment, it came back again. Mm-hmm. It's like a vicious cycle. It really is because okay. when you have a DNC, it's trauma to the uterus that can cause scarring when you do these procedures, it's another trauma to the uterus. So it's, it's like the body is learning, you know, what's, it's almost like attacking itself or something, you know, almost like in a response that my body just knew how to make scar tissue really well. So anyway, we come back to that fourth appointment and he said, we're going to go in, we're going to see what we see. And Mm -hmm. if there's scar tissue, I'll take it out and we may have to do a fifth procedure. If it's not present, then we'll make a plan, basically. And I said, okay. So he did the evaluation again with, you know, the scope, sixteen mm-hmm. long, you know, inch long piece of equipment. It's like two to three diam in diameter, two to three centimeters mm-hmm. or something. Really small. It sounds crazy, but like, so you watch this whole thing on camera, by the way, like the entire time you're awake in the procedure. And so he went in that fourth time and there was no scarring. And he said, I don't see anything. And I was like bowling, you know, in the chair. I'm like, and he said, now I think you can go have, try to have another baby. And I was like hugging, you know, trying not to hug him. So I'm like, this is like, (laughs) but he's just the kindest man. Sorry, you were going to ask a question. I was wondering what the span of time was in between each of the hysteroscopies that were being checked as you were being treated with the ashtrays. Yeah. So there were two weeks apart. 
So two weeks of estrogen in between each appointment. So Mm-hmm. From the time that he that the endocrinologist told me to go to the specialist, which you know took me, as I said, a, a few months to get an appointment, and then making that additional appointment, mm-hmm. and then actually having that fourth appointment where he said everything you know was clear was probably like six months. Maybe it was a little bit longer. I don't know. I sort of I feel like I blocked it out, you know, some of it yeah. because, and the small details of it. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they get lost in there. Yeah. yeah. So the, when the, the time, time from the first the the first hysteroscopy to the last before you that was a that was probably a couple of months. Like the so two or three yeah, months. so it's about yeah. two weeks apart. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and we did four of wow. them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long, a long process, but so essentially, yeah, I walked out to the waiting room and talked to my husband and I'm like hugging him going, oh my God, maybe we have another shot. So at this point we had one embryo left and then that was it. And this was, this was the last chance before surrogacy. Mm-hmm. And I was a hundred percent on board with surrogacy. I was like, let's okay. do this. I had actually already talked to the, the surrogate folks at the clinic. They gave me all the paperwork and they were like, you know. So you were ready to go. Yeah, I was ready. Yeah. I mean, ahead, right? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it, it's so expensive. So like we weren't, you right. know, we were trying to figure like racking our brain, like, how are we going to afford this? We're not going to be able to afford college for our first child trying to have a second. So anyway, so basically I went back to my endocrinologist and he said, I need to consult my board to make sure that they are okay with this last transfer. And here I am thinking like, let's go, let's start. Like I need this last transfer. And he was like, well, hold up. Like I need to get permission, you know, in my 30 years of practice, I've never seen a case like yours. So we need to like check. And so I, you know, essentially we had to like wait another, I think it was like another week. So he talked to them, he came back to me, he said, okay, I've been given permission. This is your last shot, basically. So this was our 14th transfer. So, which is like, yeah, I know, right? It's insane. (laughs) The amount of things that our body and minds can go through in this process. So we did the transfer and it was a couple, whatever, after we did stims and all that again, because we had another frozen transfer was our last one. And so we did the transfer and I, the entire two week wait right before we got the beta, I was... Mm -hmm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because at this point, I had had four failures in a row or four losses in a row rather. And I felt like I was just expecting it to go wrong. And anticipating, ruminating all the things that our mind does when we are in that state of anxiety and fight or flight, where, you know, I would regularly wake up during that two week wait, like, checking, checking, checking to see if I was bleeding. Mm-hmm. That constant need to know, which I went through years of therapy for this cognitive behavioral therapy. And I learned mm-hmm. a lot of coping tools. But one of the things that I learned through this process and applied in the two week wait was that I needed to stop trying to know the answer because mm-hmm. I couldn't know the answer. There was no way to know until the two-week wait was over. And I think that's something that so many women in going through treatment, regardless of where you are in your journey, we always want to know the answer like now. Like, can I just know if I'm pregnant now? Can I know if this is going to fail now? Because I don't want to know about it later. It needs to happen. So what I learned in my process through this, especially this last one after so many losses, Mm -hmm was that I needed to stay present. I needed to focus on what was happening right now. Right now, I'm still pregnant, potentially. You know, it was like that moment of like reminding myself, I'm not bleeding right now. Today, everything is okay. And that helped me get through that last two weeks before the beta. And so the numbers were good. And then we had our second beta and the numbers were really good. And I was just waiting because it was always that second data that I got the call that it wasn't working. And 
In fact, when I go back to my first loss, I remember I was bleeding before I even got the call. So in you know, so many cases, we just don't know what's going to happen. So yeah, so the beta was good. And then we went to the third. And then somehow we ended up at the 10 week ultrasound. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm can't be real. They're like, right. this, they're like, we're kicking you out. And I was like, no, <laughs> can you just keep me a little bit longer just to make sure that this isn't going to fail like the other ones. And I remember my endocrinologist like put his hands on my shoulders and he's like, it's going to be okay. You have to tell yourself that you're going to be okay. And I was just, you know, it's such an emotional process. And to have the doctor say, I'm going to be okay when I keep thinking I'm going to fail. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really difficult. And my deepest sympathies for all of your losses too, as well. They want to skip over that. Yes. So did you stay with the same endocrinologist through your entire 14? I did. Yeah. So I was with him almost 10 years on and off. Wow. Yeah. So like, because we took that break and then there was another. Yeah. So it was, it was like, it was close to a decade. Yeah. Long time. And he said to me right before that transfer, he said, I'm going to be retiring in the next year, but I'm not retiring until we get you pregnant and get you to have another baby. And I remember thinking that is a sign of a good doctor <laughs> when he doesn't want to yes, give up on you, absolutely. you know, whether, you know, whether yeah, it be, be a service team yeah. or, or my, myself. So, yeah, so we ended up wonderful. having our second and I, you know, of course that entire pregnancy, I was an anxious mess because mm-hmm. I had had so many losses and of all the things that we had been through, I felt like. It was like that pressure for this to, this was our last shot, you know? So it was also that, that pressure that we put on ourselves to make it work. Like if our body isn't working, like we can't control that. There's so much about infertility that we can't control. I mean, all of it really. And I think that's why, you know, it's so important to find a community. And I didn't actually find that community until I had my losses. Mm -hmm. So it was several years of doing it on my own. And I connected with other women, you know, I started talking about with just like one or two friends. And then it ended up being, oh, well, there's like, there's support groups for this. Oh, there's, there's other things you can do. And I Mm -hmm. kind of felt like I had wished that I had done it sooner. And Mm -hmm. there's so many incredible resources. I know probably know all of them, but resolve is one of the most helpful, I think in my process, because they had access to support groups and, you know, they're free, Mm -hmm. you know, because so many women at the beginning of my infertility journey that I knew were all just having babies. They're all just having babies, Mm -hmm. so many babies, Mm -hmm. you know, baby showers, birthday parties, you know, it just kept adding up. And I'm like, I couldn't talk about it with them. Like, cause mm-hmm. I just felt like they didn't understand. So you mm-hmm. really do feel like it's so much of this process. Like you're expected to do it alone. Yeah. yeah. And then that goes back to that silent suffering that I'm always talking about here on the platform and on Instagram as well. Yeah. The terms I deemed that I coined. Yeah. Because I did, I too did the same thing. It wasn't yeah. until the summer that I got pregnant with my son that I started telling people outside of my mom and dad. Yeah. And so I, I resonate with that so, so very much. And it's like now I can't stop telling everybody. Talking about you know, it, right? How it feels. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's there's a quote. There's a quote. And I want to say Melinda French Gates said something like, yeah. Once you find your voice, you you will never want to stop talking because you never want to sh- stop sharing it. Because if we talk about it more and we decrease that stigma and decrease that, you know, sort of ignorance about it. For lack of a better word, it is ignorance because so many people outside of the infertility community don't understand what it's like. And so we end up putting it back on ourselves. And like you said, struggling in silence. And that silence is deafening because we end up you know, I was depressed and I was isolated and I was anxious and I was having all these things going on. I waited until I was basically showing, which obviously happened a lot sooner with my second, 
until I told people. I actually had someone reach out to a friend of mine and they sent an email to a friend of mine and said, is Lisa pregnant? <laughs> like they sent an email asking because I hadn't told anyone and they didn't want to ask me. And I felt like it was so weird. I'm like, that is weird. And we just it's talk weird. about I mean, life. Come to like, the person who you think is pregnant. Like, yeah. But also don't ever ask a woman if she's pregnant. Like, just like, right. if she looks like she's pregnant, maybe just let it be until she wants to talk about it. You know, yep. let's, yep. let's not speculate. Let's not have rumors, you know, like let's just, mm. but support each yeah. other and, and empathize and listen. You don't always have to offer a solution to someone who's struggling, you know? Mm-hmm. And most of the time I feel like most people, if somebody's looking for a solution, they'll ask you specific, specific. I can't talk today. Jeez, me Christmas. I feel like most of the time people, when they are looking for solutions, they will yeah. ask you for solution type questions. They will ask yeah. you a certain way. And yeah. again, I'm just already saying it. They'll ask you. But most of the time, I feel like people just want a lending, a shoulder to cry on or ear yes. or yeah. just support in the physical sense of of needing the, the care and the empathy of another person. When people want solutions, they will ask specific questions that are solution That's uh, so true. oriented or based. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I feel like for people like yourself who are a type you're probably one of those kind of people like they're not really looking for solutions. Like I just need you to listen to me and and, and tell me if I'm going crazy or not. Like I, yeah. I probably already have it figured out, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes having a sounding board is helpful. Yeah. And but that empathy is so valuable because when someone is listening and supporting, I feel like, you know, when when we're in that process, it's validating. It's so mm-hmm. validating to know that someone is trying to understand versus mm-hmm. just saying things like, well, at least you already have one child, you know, right, right, or, right. you know, at least, you know, you can get pregnant. It's like mm-hmm. all the things not to say when you're trying yeah. to support someone. So, yeah. But not, and then they're not even knowing how long it took you to get pregnant the right. first time or right. how much of a burden in hill that was to climb. Yeah. Um, as well as all of the emotional turmoil that you were going through with anxiety yeah. and depression. And I feel like people need to start asking questions and being curious instead of just making assumptions with their responses. But yes. you know, that's a whole other topic for a different day because I could go on and on about that type of behavior too. But so yeah. as a writer and PR specialist, how, when did you decide that you wanted to be more of a, a vocal advocate? How long after your second baby? So my son is actually turning five in February. So I started writing about this on my own, probably like a couple of years ago. I mean, I've been writing in general, in, in my role in PR and also sort of independently, I would say Mm -hmm. since college, you know, a long time, 20 years, but with respect to this story and these experiences, it's been, Mm -hmm. you know, the last year or so, I just started sort of coming to realize that I needed to start dealing with it. And I don't even know that I wasn't I don't even think I knew I wasn't coping. Mm. So writing became a powerful tool for me to cope in the first place. And so I think it sort of happened organically where I thought maybe some of these words could help someone else. Maybe sharing my story could help someone else to feel like they're less alone. And in that Mm -hmm. process of feeling less alone, maybe I can also offer some tools to help them to implement so that they can do and feel better because Mm -hmm. when I was going through it, I would have liked to have had that. And I didn't, I didn't have other people to say, you know, well, I went through that too, with an exception of when I went through my miscarriages and I had a couple of friends say to me, well, I had a miscarriage too. And I was like, really? Like, Oh, I thought we weren't supposed to talk Mm -hmm. about that. And so the writing kind of happened organically. And so then I started sharing my story. And the first story that I shared publicly was earlier this year was on Today Show 
on today.com about my dad and losing my dad. <clears throat> so it's been four years since he passed, but the day that I was induced to have my son, because mm. my fluid dropped, was the day that I said goodbye to my dad. Mm. So I thought to myself, if I write this, what will happen? So I just like wrote it all out. And then I thought, maybe someone else has gone through this. Maybe this could help someone else. And so I guess over the last year, I really started thinking, you know, I needed to pay it forward, if you will, because why, if we know ways to get through things, and if we have learned things and our experiences, why not share them? Why would we hold that to ourselves? Why would we not want to help other women who are going through it? And this is for all women's health issues. I mean, mental health, you know, maternal health. It all kind of stems together, I feel like. It really does. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. the more we talk about this stuff in general, like you were saying earlier, you know, it's so important to bring it to the surface and create an awareness about it. Because if we don't, then we're just going to all continue feeling this awful feeling of isolation. And Mm -hmm. I, I know on social media too, like I try to share like inspirational messages and you know, really keep it real like you do. I love all your videos, by the way. (laughs) You just make me, it just really like brightens my day because I think this is so real. You are just so real. And I (laughs) I think your authenticity is refreshing. Oh, thank you. But I think it's really important to be that authentic person on social media because there's so much that isn't real, you know? And so inspiration going on. Yeah. And and I get it. Like, you know, there's the influencer, but I almost feel like I'm like the influencer because I just, I just want to share what's on my mind and whatever I'm experiencing that day. And also resonate with people who may be going through it because I have my own community, you know, on my social page Mm -hmm. on Instagram that, you know, women who are going through infertility, you know, they follow me and I follow them and we have little circles where we come, you know, have conversations and they ask questions to each other. And I feel like at least I'm sharing, you know, what I went through for a purpose, you know, like all this pain, Mm -hmm. I have to turn it into something positive because it feels like at least I'm doing something, you know, like instead of, and, and those who are going through it, of course, like if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. But just know that there are options to talk about it because writing is great. But if you don't write, that's okay. I mean, listening to your podcast and, you know, following people on social media that are helpful, I feel like is also supportive to you because if you're following people that make you feel worse, unfollow them, like disconnect, Mm -hmm. don't... Mm -hmm force yourself to feel like you need to be somewhere just because that person is popular, you know? Yeah. I think eliminating that us women sometimes have, you know, yeah, it's kind of spills over into the community, unfortunately, sometimes, but I totally agree. What were you going to say, dear? Oh, I was just going to say, I think it's important to surround yourself with the people that feel the most supportive in this process. And that goes for mental health in general, during and after treatment. And for those who didn't have success with infertility, there are options for support too. I mean, there are so many women that I know that I follow that are talking about this childless after infertility because there is another part of this. There is another, you know, like I was lucky and I recognize that every single day, but there is another part to this that like I, I could have been that person. Yeah. And sometimes I think about like, what if that IVF, IVF had never worked for us? And also yeah. what if the second one hadn't worked? So it's definitely like a whole other world and, and considering, you know, looking at ways to feel supported, you know, writing, meditation, yoga has been really helpful for me, walking <clears throat> as well. There's definitely like something about going for a walk to get your mind to calm down when you're feeling that sort of overload of the situation. So those are kind of the tools that I use even now, you know, I'm five years out of treatment almost, which it feels like it was like another job, you know, a full-time job that we all, 
you know, feel like you're in. And then now that I'm out of it, it's strange to say, I do sort of just miss it a little bit, not the horrible things about it, but I miss the people that helped me because they do it every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that support that you felt from them too, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank you for giving us all your wisdom because my my last question is usually what advice would you have or a word you would have for the community that you, especially for someone who's new and maybe yeah. newly diagnosed or even that person who's been in it for a very long time, like yeah. you had been in the past five or 10 years has gone by and still without any, I want to, I really don't want to say successes, but without the outcome, the outcome that they likely yeah. would have wanted to have. Yeah. If there's a last word you would, or a word of wisdom yeah. you would have for them. Yeah. I would just say support. I mean, really, that's the best thing you can do for yourself is find support, whether that be mental health support for yourself. Not everybody believes in therapy, but I do think that it's a very valuable tool. I learned how to change my pathway of thinking in cognitive behavioral therapy. I learned how to keep myself in the present and other coping tools. If therapy isn't for you, that's okay. Look at free support services, you know, through Resolve and obviously on social media too. I think you have an incredible platform. People need to really you know, reach out. Don't feel like you have to do it alone. Without that support, mm-hmm. we are struggling in silence and you don't have to be. Yes, absolutely. Lisa, give us your Instagram handle so we can follow you sure. as well as um, read your pieces that you have written in the last Yeah, I would year. be grateful. Thank you for sharing that. It's LB McCarty. Set, oh, is that right? Oh my gosh, I don't even know my handle. Girl, I'm <laughs> it'll old. Be in the, it'll be in the show. It'll be yeah, LB McCarty 717, I think. But just, yes, just check LB the caption <laughs> and, yes. and Monique will hook you up. Thank you so much for having me. And um, absolutely, I hope this was helpful for you and for your listeners. And please just know that you're not alone. That's the best, the best thing I can say too. Yep. And we're going to end it right there. You guys know where to find me on the gram infertility and me podcast, as well as on YouTube at infertility and me podcast for a while. We were just doing still frame videos to decrease my workload, but visuals are now available again on YouTube. So if you would like to consume the content there, that is also an option for you, but you know, you can always find me on Instagram. Peace and blessings friends. Thank you. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.